I'm Steve Fisher. From the time man first looked up at the heavens, we've wondered, are we alone? Is there other life out there? What form does it take? Is it intelligent? More advanced than we are. Popular entertainment has shown us the ETs, smart, benevolent creatures who mean us no harm, and the aliens and predators determined to wipe us out. Scientists are searching, not sure what they'll find when they find them. Dr. Amy Williams is one of those scientists. I think that the big thing that that motivates me in this realm of research and and what what keeps kind of keeps me going is thinking about how when we find life beyond earth how that will redefine humanity our experience our expectations our view of our place in the universe She's here to tell us about searching for life on Mars and elsewhere on Life Slices <music> And we're here with Dr. Amy Williams. So I'm going to start with a question that you should be eminently qualified to answer. Who is Amy Williams? I love this question. So I am an astrobiologist. I am a geobiologist. I am a geoscientist. I'm a woman in science. I am the first in my family to get a PhD. And I care a lot about the search for life beyond Earth. When you first told your family that you were going into geology, did they think you must have rocks in your head? <laughs> I think they were probably excited about the rocks in my head. So geology is a found major, which means that so many of us are not exposed to it in primary and secondary school. Don't realize that it's a major as well as job option. And so just by chance, I took an earth and environmental science class as a freshman and changed my whole career. When you were a kid, did you ever do that? I, I remember going out with a hammer and finding rocks and breaking them open just to see oh, what yeah. was inside. Oh, yeah. I would come home with rocks in my pockets, and I know it must have driven my mom crazy. Now being a mom myself and bringing home, my kid brings home acorns and whatever else in his pockets. <laughs> I realize now the burden that this is, but I think that probably should have been the the preface to my life as a geologist, I should have known it was coming. Your kid's going to bring go into acornology. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Your website says, I have to read this, my research interests include the formation and preservation of physical and molecular biosignatures in terrestrial environments as an analog for putative biosignature formation on Mars. Can you translate that to English for my listeners? I can, yes, I can translate that, I would say, into text for a general audience. So that means that I'm interested in whether there's life beyond Earth. And that means that in order for me to explore that question, what I need to do is understand the diversity of how life on Earth expresses itself. So that means how, how does it live? How does it get preserved once it dies? What does that look like? What does that look like on a variety of instruments? And how can we apply that knowledge to the search for life beyond Earth? Most people would think of biology in looking for life extraterrestrially. What does geology have to do with life? Oh, fabulous question. And the really fun part is that as a geobiologist, I get to kind of marry the two together. So yes, the life is the biology part, but if you want to preserve it over the long term, and that means geologic time scales, millions to hundreds of millions to billions of years, you have to preserve it in rock. Rocks have the ability to house the 
organism, house it's organic and protect it from all of the myriad of destructive forces that might erase it from the rock record. So if you want to see something a billion years ago or four billion years ago, the way to find it is in the rock. Now, I have to ask, you are at the University of Florida, is that correct? That is correct. Is Florida known for having lots of extraterrestrial life in it? Florida? <laughs> what, what a fun question. So Florida, yeah, is certainly a unique place. And I would say that Florida should be well known for our ability to launch rockets to places around our solar system. We have a very popular space coast. And there are several institutions in the state that focus on space exploration in one way or the other. As far as I know, there's only a handful of astrobiologists in the state of Florida institutions where we're doing research. And I think we're all doing really cool stuff. So speaking of your research, you've been a member of the NASA Curiosity Rover Science Team since 2009 and work with the Sample Analysis at Mars instrument team to explore the distribution of organic molecules on Mars' surface. What does that entail? Obviously, you can't just go to Mars to check out the landscape yet. <laughs> give, it, give it a year or two. But what does that entail? How does your research work? The, the really fun thing about some of the acronyms for the instruments on these missions is that they don't necessarily have to tell you anything about what they do. So the SAM instrument, Sample Analysis at Mars, doesn't tell you that it can detect organic carbon and that it can sniff out stable isotopes and rocks in the atmosphere. It can do all kinds of things. And so the SAM instrument, the, the portion of it that I work on, can look for organic carbon. And so organic carbon, even though it makes up all life on Earth as we know it, doesn't only have to be made by life. It can also be made by geologic processes and it can also be made in meteorites. And so when you see organic carbon on Mars, the question then has to become, where does it come from? And that's what we've been trying to disentangle for more than 10 years now. Once we sent SAM and its ability to detect organic carbon, which we did then see fairly readily after we started operating with Curiosity, the question becomes, is it made geologically, meteoritically, or by life? In what ways and has our thoughts about alien life evolved? Oh, what a fabulous question. So I think for your listeners, I think that this is its good for you to know that this is one of the ways that I really got into astrobiology and the search for life beyond Earth. Because when I you know, was a kid, I started to understand that life doesn't just need photosynthesis, right? All life doesn't just need solar power. And then you have trophic levels above that. Things feed on the things that are photosynthesizing. There are so many other ways to get energy for a metabolism for life to live. And so discovering that as a kid and, and pursuing it, that kind of led me along the path of you have life that can access all of these different energy sources. Could that be happening on other worlds? Maybe there's someone else looking back at us and seeing, seeing us looking out into the stars and, and thinking the same things. Are we alone in the universe? Well, there was a, a great Star Trek episode in the original Star Trek series where they go to a planet and they think there's no life there. And then they find this rock that is a sentient being. So it, That's it, right. what's the likelihood that an extraterrestrial life might not conform to the way we define life on this planet? Oh, what a 
fabulous question. And that is what we, we keep thinking about. Is it life as we know it or life as we don't know it? So number one, the rock alien is the Horda, which I definitely remember that episode and probably should have known I was going to be a geologist at some point based on my love for that episode. So one of the things that we have to do is think about life as we know it first. We have one data point. It is life on Earth. And life on Earth is quite diverse. But there is basically a set code of ways that we that life on Earth operates. And some of that is chemical evolution to get us to that point, And then biological evolution takes over after that. My thought has been that to understand life as we don't know it, we need to understand life as we do know it and use that as our guide to how weird can life possibly be? I think that that answer is so big that we might not even be able to really comprehend it. So we start with life as we know it, something that needs organic carbon building blocks that uses some similar, if not the same types of chemicals and maybe a, a genetic code, something that you can use for adaption and evolution to have a successful species. But then, yeah, you can think about the bigger th- ideas. How evolved can a technological civilization get? How far can it go? How far can it expand into its solar system, its galaxy, the universe? Could it use silicon as a, a you know, silicon-based life the way that the, the Horda used it? Is all of that an option? There's maybe countless number of, of options for what life could look like. But when it comes to building instruments to look for extraterrestrial life, one of the things that we have to use is life as we know it first. Mm-hmm. That gives us a starting point. Because I'm even wondering, is it possible that there is life out there that we're not even capable of seeing or feeling or hearing? You know, yeah. So I was reading about about some of this recently, and it it's so interesting to consider what do what do we not know? What do we not even realize we don't know? There are those unknown unknowns, and that's in exploration. That's in everything that we do in humanity, I think. But is it possible that life in the universe could evolve in such a way that it's just to us appears to be the background of the cosmos, but it is actually life? Can we answer that question? Not right now. But I think it is really interesting to consider the the variety of form and matter and light and whatever else is out there. Like what could life really accomplish given enough time and enough resources? I don't think we have an answer for that. Is there life everywhere in the universe? My favorite way of thinking about this is Carl Sagan's quote that if it's just us, it seems like an awful waste of space. <laughs> I totally agree with that. And and everyone talks about the search for intelligent life in the universe. We're not even sure there's intelligent life on Earth. <laughs> yeah, it depends on who you ask, for That's, sure. Yeah. So now, now I, I have to ask just a quick side question. Do you have a very large collection of pet rocks? Oh, yes. And so if the if your listeners could see my office behind me here, I have so many rocks. I also have many models of the Curiosity and Perseverance rovers behind me. Yes, I have unfortunately, for all the movers who have helped me over my career, been carrying a bunch of rocks with me. Yeah. Do you need that boulder where you're going? Yes, I do. Yes, of course. I'm a scientist. I once was trying to fly back from Patagonia, from southern Chile, 
and I had a bunch of rocks and I didn't want to check them because I didn't want them to to potentially get broken. But you should have seen the the security administration people being like, what are these? And I was trying to translate in Spanish. And I said, I'm a soy una geologist. And they just looked at me like I had three eyes and they were like, you can't take the big rock. You can have the small ones. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm wondering how they would fare in the overhead bin. Yes. That that was that was the concern. In the end, they made it back, and they're part of the ever-growing collection of rocks in my poor pet rock collection. What is the Atacama? I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. The Atacama Desert, and why does it hold such a fascination for planetary scientists? Oh, the Atacama is just one of these fabulous Mars analog environments that scientists have identified as an analog system and one that we can study to better understand how life can adapt to an extreme environment and how those signatures of life, even if they're there, the life is gone now, how those signatures might be preserved. So there are places around Earth that we call Mars analog environments and analog being a way to compare that terrestrial environment, something on Mars. No environment on Earth is perfectly like Mars, at least a natural environment. But one of the ways that the Atacama allows us to get an analog is that it's a very dry region. It has a very high UV radiation flux because of its altitude. Is that right? I, <laughs> um, you're asking me. I know. Oh, well, so, so yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a such, such elevation and the high UV flux is actually in some ways an analog to what we think we're seeing on, on Mars. It's extraordinarily dry. It, it, there's very rarely any precipitation. And so there are these different conditions that you can pick out that you can say, this is like some region on Mars. There are other regions all over the world that we use for these analogs, acid mine drainage systems, the dry valleys of Antarctica. So they all can approximate Mars in one way or the other. So Atacama is really interesting because of the extraordinary desiccation and the high radiation flux. It gives us a way to understand, for example, life that lives in the rock and it shields itself from that UV flux by being underneath the surface of rocks. So it just gets enough solar energy to actually drive photosynthesis in some cases, but it's protected from the UV flux that could degrade its DNA and could, could destroy it. So those rocks there and whatever, they're smarter than humans because we go out and sit in the sun and try to absorb all the radiation we can. Well, it's like their sunscreen. And for humans who elect to use sunscreen, yeah, we've just, we're, we're kind of coming at it from different directions, but you're right. The microbes figured it out potentially earlier than the humans did. So Martians wouldn't say, take me to your leader. They'd say, honey, put another rock on my back. Exactly. <laughs> we have we have so many stressors on Mars. You've got to protect yourself. That's right. In this article I read where I discovered you, they talked about the discovery of microbial DNA. What does that pretend for life elsewhere? So when we're looking for evidence of life beyond Earth, there's all kinds of things that we can look for. We can look for actual whole organisms. And that probably in the case at least of Mars, is going to be a single-celled organism. So we're looking at something that is like our bacteria or our archaea or single-celled eukaryotes, but not big dynamic macrofauna. There are no giraffes on Mars that we've, that we've seen so far. I know I hate to ruin it for everyone. 
So what we're looking for well, there are might smaller... be, but they'd be green. They yes, you know, it's <laughs> we're just we're colorblind to the giraffe. <laughs> so there's there's when we use the example of life as we know it, what we think we're looking for are single celled organisms. And so those organisms, even if they are no longer living, if there's no longer an ecosystem, it's basically like they've been entombed where you can preserve either the whole cell or parts of the organic carbon within that cell. And so one of those things that is made up of organic carbon and a couple of other elements is DNA. So finding microbial DNA in these Mars analog rocks, this is a way to identify a biosignature in a Mars analog environment and say, okay, how challenging is it for us to detect that DNA or those organic molecules with the kinds of instruments that we send to Mars to do that same job? How challenging is it? So as we talked about with the Horta, is there any evidence of Earth that there are any geological forms that have some kind of life in them? Can I ask for a clarification on that question? How do you mean? Like well, the, you that could, life is preserved it would, in it? It would depend on somebody smarter than me to try to <laughs> clarify it because I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> is there a chance that there are rock forms or something that, I mean, we know there are biological creatures that make themselves look like rocks for camouflage. So are there any rocks out there that camouflage themselves as human beings? We don't know. You would never be able to know. Certainly folks, they might look like they have rocks in their brains, but the neat thing about rocks is that just like the Horda, they're made up mostly of silicon bonds, right? And there's a lot of other elements that play a role in the different kinds of rocks that are there. So I think it's neat that the geology tends to be our sort of our basis, our root, and probably did play a role in the evolution of life on Earth. So I think in some ways we can we can think of the rocks as this resource that probably helped with origin of life and evolution of life on Earth. But certainly no rocks that are alive, not counting my pet rock collection, of course. <laughs> Years ago, this is probably before you were born, I was fortunate to to meet and have lunch with one of our original astronauts, Gordon Cooper. He told me that he had actually met an extraterrestrial at a White House lunch function, <laughs> that it he was a prominent individual, and that they're living among us as their planet was dying. So other than that, this would explain a lot about Washington, D.C. Oh, my, yes. <laughs> what do you think of the possibility that they are humanoid and living in our midst because they came from a dying planet? Based on my experience as an astrobiologist and studying other worlds, not just Mars, thinking about the icy outer ocean worlds, Enceladus, Europa, the constraints on life as we know it, and the constraints on interstellar travel, I think it would be really challenging to say that someone really is not of this Earth. I think that there are plenty of hypotheses. I think like legitimate, they're a little fringy, but things that people talk about like a dark biosphere, right? And so that is is a concept that there maybe are organisms, again, like our bacteria or archaea, that use such a different biochemistry that our techniques actually don't detect them. Now, I think, like I said, this is, it tends to be sort of on the edge of things, like it's ways of thinking about life as we don't know it. Could you detect that life if it didn't have perfect biochemistry, just like the terrestrial life we've built all of our instruments on? The answer is, 
no, not necessarily, but maybe you would find signatures of it. And so I think if you scale that up to are, are they living among us? I think that again, you're getting into a realm where you're, you're not going to get any traction with that. And I don't want to upset any listeners who feel very confident in this, of course, but from, from the scientific method, from the approach that, that we're taking, understanding how difficult it is to traverse interstellar space without pretty advanced technology and to adapt to another world, it's going to be extraordinarily challenging. There's actually a concept that perhaps we all are actually Martians, and this is called panspermia. So this is the idea that perhaps life had an origin on Mars and during sort of the periods where there was more heavy bombardment that you had a piece of rock that was ejected from an impact, circled in the solar system, landed on Earth and took hold. And so there are lots of experiments testing whether you could life could survive the ejection, circling in the solar system and landing on another world and then being able to evolve rapidly to take advantage of the conditions on that other world. There are a lot of hurdles to clear in order for that kind of hypothesis to work, but it is something that that certainly we've invested. I would say like the scientific community has invested resources in trying to understand if it's possible. Yeah, I think if people coming from Mars, the red planet would explain all the red states we have. Oh, my. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to That's go awesome. any deeper than that. <laughs> Entertainment has always shown us benevolent extraterrestrials, not a lot. And then very violent, horrific creatures bent on destroying us. When we finally connect with extraterrestrial life, which form do you think they'll be? What a fabulous question. And so torn because as an astrobiologist, I dedicate my time to thinking about how we could find life beyond Earth. And I don't invest a lot of my emotional energy in thinking about, is it going to like us or not like us? I think if we find the life, it's probably very likely going to be microbial, meaning it's like single-celled like bacteria and so forth. And honestly, I might be more worried about us exterminating that life. Yes, exactly. Although, as I think we've all, we've all learned recently from the pandemic, that microbial life and even smaller viruses, which are on the threshold of maybe but not maybe being life, that these organisms have plenty of power behind them to cause a lot of trouble. So it's more that I think about in the near term, if we were to find microbial life, what are the chances that we would actually lead to its extinction versus it leading to ours? And so I think, thankfully, it'll be someone else's question about if we meet technologically advanced life beyond Earth, what the conditions of that of that meeting will be? That's it's an interesting thing. There was a, a an outer limit episode years ago where they decided to have peace on Earth. We had to face an ex external threat, so they got a an astronaut actually. I, I think the character was and turned him into an alien being, launched him into space, had him come back to Earth for a perceptible threat that would unite mankind. But, of course, he landed in some redneck area, and as soon as he emerged, this big, weird, alien-looking creature, the, these rednecks shot him and killed oh, him. Geez. Oh, gosh. I, and I think that's very possible. That would be our reaction. 
I think that that, yeah, that probably, I mean, is certainly meant to speak to humanity's reaction to, to threats, to our ability to handle threats. And, and there's always going to be that, that realm of us versus them, right? If we don't have a them that's beyond earth, we, we identify the them within humanity that we want to set ourselves against, which I, I just, I'm over it. I'm really tired of it. Why can't we, why can't we rise above that behavior? and strive for that peace without requiring that external threat. I know. If only if I had that answer then then we we would have a very different conversation today. Again, it's that search for intelligent life wherever there you it go. may exist. So, I would say in that vein, I I think that the big thing that that motivates me in this realm of research and and what what keeps kind of keeps me going is thinking about how when we find life beyond earth how that will redefine humanity, our experience, our expectations, our view of our place in the universe. It will be paradigm shifting. And, and there are so many ways to think about how that knowledge will impact how the world works, how people perceive what we're doing. But in the meanwhile, before we find that life beyond Earth, for me, as a, as a, as a human, as a person, as a mom, as a partner, what I, what I see this as is a way to think about how small and precious and fragile and special we all are. This tiny pale blue dot, this evolution of life that we have not yet detected elsewhere in our solar system, our galaxy, our universe. It's so precious and fragile that I use this knowledge of, of how hostile really Mars and these other planets would be to life as we know it mm -hmm. to think about trying to be a good steward, my, my environment of working with my, my colleagues, my friends, even people who may not like me to try to find solutions in better ways, because this is it right now for us and for the foreseeable future. And so I use that knowledge to, to guide me as a person to try to just help and be a better person because this is it folk this is all we have so let's take care of it i like it i like it if nasa came to you tomorrow and said we want you to go on a mission to mars would you go i would not and i can tell you why and it's super embarrassing but i don't even do really well on roller coasters so i imagine launching and landing and probably transit would not go well for me. So I don't want to be the pukey astronaut. <laughs> that would that would be my nickname, I feel. And I don't want to be that one. I'm seeing a new TV series, The Pukey <laughs> Astronaut. Starring, starring Amy Williams. I love it. How can people learn more about your work? I'm an assistant professor at the University of Florida. I have a website, of course, you can learn about the work that my group is doing. But I would say the big way to keep up with what's going on in Mars exploration with our rovers is to check out NASA's resources on the Curiosity and Perseverance missions. Of course, NASA has tons of other missions to other really interesting places. So I strongly encourage folks to check that out as well. And you will probably see me on social media here and there. But just keep an eye out on Mars because as far as I can see, it keeps throwing us curveballs, really interesting things that we never would have expected. So let's see what that next curveball is going to be. I keep waiting for a NASA rover to be traveling around Mars or something and all of a sudden see a little alien creature waving. 
It's like, hi, we're here. The great thing about the rovers is that we have to tell it exactly where to take images every time. So I can just pretend that the aliens are hiding behind the cameras, just like following us. Not really. For those of you out there who think it's, I'm saying it for real, I'm not, but I like to pretend this. <laughs> if Martians are anything like us, they would be so busy fixing themselves up for the camera that they'd miss it. They'd go out and go, where'd it go? It's just there. Luckily, we are so slow at driving in the relative scheme of things that they probably wouldn't miss us. Amy, is there any question you would like to answer that I haven't asked? Oh, wow. See, I didn't even know this would be an option. This is exciting. I guess the question would be, if you are interested in getting into a STEM field, science, technology, engineering, or math, if you want to work with NASA, if you are a primary or secondary ed student who's interested in all of this, there are so many resources to enable students and professionals to engage with NASA as uh, citizen scientists and as scientists who work for these groups or work with these groups. So pursue your passion, pursue your science. You can get into this kind of work the same way I did. Amy, that's terrific. Thank you so much for your time and for being here. And I appreciate your knowledge. I am now going to be looking up at the sky every night, wondering where the heck are you guys? Come on. Yep. Just look up in the sky and think we're so, so unique and small and fragile here. Perhaps we can all consider that together. My thanks to Amy Williams for sharing her ongoing scientific journey. Although we haven't yet found life beyond Earth, it stands to reason it's out there, somewhere. NASA's missions to the cosmos and popular entertainment have fueled our imagination. But our reason tells us we're not alone. There's no telling what our inevitable connection with otherworldly beings will unveil. But for now, we can work on preparing our civilization to connect with another. And it starts with trying to make the human race the best it can be to show our interplanetary neighbors there's no reason to feel there goes the neighborhood. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions. All rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. Mm-hmm.